Hi everyone, Tony Hines here, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, some great things coming up. Stay tuned. Well, if you think of all the problems that we've had in the last week or two in the Red Sea, and many shipping companies saying that they're going to sail around the Cape of Good Hope to avoid the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, then these are challenging times for shipping. I took a look at uh, Lloyd's list, and on the 18th of December, they say that up to 1.7 million TEU container ship capacity could be needed for the Red Sea rerouting. So let's have a look at that, because the rerouting of all the container ships around the Horn of Africa will need significant capacity. Liner operators, they say, could speed up vessels to make for longer voyages, as they require additional capacity to maintain services that typically use those routes. And they reckon that this could be 1.7 million TEUs. Interestingly, the Evergreen company is one of those companies that will be rerouting its ships. And if you remember, Evergreen had the Evergiven stuck in sewers a couple of years back. So they don't want uh, any further disasters to behold their company. So all this disruption is due to the Houthis attacking the ships from Yemen. And Yemen is on the entrance to the Red Sea. So there are all kinds of problems in shipping. The drought in the Panama Canal means vessels on the Asia to US East Coast route can't use the Panama Canal, and this will result in more significant disruptions for those vessels. And then you've got this problem in the Red Sea and sewers on the east-west journeys coming from places like China. Container freight rates on the Asia to Mediterranean routes have already risen by 20%, so they've already pushed up the prices. So as I said in the news roundup last week, you've got prices going up, so the cost will increase for everybody. The insurance costs will go up because of the higher risks. And, of course, freight charges have already gone up and they're on the rise. So this rerouting of these vessels around Africa will likely add about a million dollars to a large container ship's fuel cost. And we've already seen eight ships diverted. The CMA Benjamin Franklin, which is an 18,000 TU vessel. HMM Dublin, Maersk Hanoi. Those are 24,000 TEUs and 15,200 respectively. And the MSC ships, Erica, 19,000 TEUs, Isabella, 24,000, Tessa, 24,000, and the MSC Virginia, 14,000. And the YM Wonderland, which is a 14,000 TEU ship. So this little tiny corner of Yemen at the Bab al-Mandab Strait is the problem. And the United States is already arranging to put ships there to dampen down that problem and bring things back into control. Several US allies have said they support efforts to protect shipping in the Red Sea after attacks by Yemen-Iran-backed Houthi groups on container traffic, but some have not committed to a joint naval coalition. Washington said it's building for the task. US Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin announced on Tuesday plans to set up a multinational coalition to safeguard Red Sea shipping and it's called Operation Prosperity Guardian. During a trip to the Middle East, he said, it would be backed by Britain, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Seychelles and Spain. France has said it supported the effort. Italy said it would send naval frigate 
Virginia Fasken to the Red Sea, Spain's Defence Ministry said it would only participate in NATO-led missions or EU-coordinated operations. Britain said HMS Diamond would join Operation Prosperity Guardian. The Netherlands said it would send two staff officers and Norway said it would send 10 naval officers to Bahrain, the headquarters of CMF. A combined maritime force is a multinational maritime partnership led by the United States from Bahrain, which is the base for the US Navy 5th Fleet. The CMF has 39 members, including NATO and European states, regional countries and other nations. It's a bit strange that Spain have decided not to support the particular coalition, arguing that they'll only follow a NATO or European operation, when in fact NATO is part of the CMF. We'll have to see what happens. Saudi Arabia were conspicuously absent from the task force to tackle the problem of the Houthis in Yemen. And that's because Riyadh is trying to enter a period of detente with Iran. So it's trying to pursue its interests to dampen down conflict with its immediate neighbours at the expense of not resolving or helping to resolve this particular problem. The United Arab Emirates also doesn't have an appetite for this venture. It costs about five to $600,000 to send a ship through the Suez Canal. And if you think that 35 of these ships are now not going to go through that canal, just multiply that up 35 times five dollars $600,000 for one of those container ships to pass through. What's that? 17, 18 million? And who's going to lose that money? Egypt and the Suez Canal Company. They're going to lose the money. So if anybody's going to be pressurizing Yemeni Houthis to fall in line, it's likely to be Egypt, because they have the most to lose by their actions. And just as we're closing down this particular episode, I'm hearing stories that the price of freight in some areas on routes from Asia to the United States have gone up by as much as 40%. So I said 20% earlier on, but obviously... This capacity issue is pushing up prices further. And I heard one report on CNBC which said that uh, a container box would cost about $10,000. Now that's back to COVID prices. So very quickly these, these rates have shot up and become a lot more expensive. And that means the goods inside the boxes are going to be more expensive. So consumers are going to be worse off. The traders are going to be worse off, but actually the shippers are going to make money once again from this. Although they've rerouted their ships around the Cape of Good Hope, that cost is going directly onto the customer. They're not going to bear any cost. So last week, before these attacks took hold, a 20-foot container was costing about 1900 US dollars to ship from Shanghai to the UK, and it was about $2,400 for a 40-foot container. But this week, a 40-foot container is up to $10,000 from Shanghai to the UK. That's gone up by four times the original price last week of 2400 That would bring us to about 9600 So it's over four times as much to ship that container. So where's this going to stop? Well, it can't go on. And of course, the shippers are the beneficiaries. And I've heard people talking about the first quarter of 2024 being quite expensive. Well, I would say a good strategy would be to delay your shipment 
to put pressure on the shippers to lower their prices, if you can. But if you need the goods and it's critical to get them, you can't. And of course, the shippers know this. Now, some of the big retailers, of course, Walmart, Ikea, Home Depot, and many others, will be looking nervously at the closure of the Suez Canal and shippers going round the Horn of Africa. It adds more miles, it adds cost to the transport option. And, of course, they'll be looking collectively at the shippers, the three PLs, the four PLs, four-party logistics and so on, the intermodal carriers. They'll be looking at ways to minimise the disruption by considering a range of options. Some of the options that they'll consider, of course, will be ship part of the way and then look to air freight. The problem, of course, is the capacity of air freight is limited, can't take as much. These ships are very large. They can carry thousands of containers. And putting those all on planes will be very expensive as well. It's a much higher cost to do that. And so that option is limited in some way. They can also consider part of the route by road. But again, it's messier, trickier, and you won't be able to ship as many containers as quickly and efficiently as you can by ship. So this disruption can't go on, of course. But the Houthis are supporting Hamas against Israel. So it's a real geopolitical hotbed. And they've said that any ships that the US is likely to put in the Red Sea would be subject to attacks. Now, of course, whether they have the full capability to do that is another matter. But it's a threat. And the threat must be considered and taken seriously. And obviously, the military options will be considered. Meanwhile, retailers will be hoping that a solution is found more quickly than expected. At present, it doesn't look likely that agreement will be reached. The Suez Canal transports about 10% of global world trade through its routes. So it's quite a problem while it's out of action. Of course, longer term, many retailers might be looking to source their products from elsewhere to avoid such disruption. Around 35,000 vessels move through the Suez Canal every year. And if we look at the other options, if we think about air freight, it's only really possible for critical products because it costs 5 to 15 times more to move goods by air than it does by ship. So it's not a long-term option. It will, of course, push the price of the products up in consumer goods markets, and many of the people operating global logistics companies have said they expect this problem to ease over the Christmas period when retailers slow down because they're getting rid of stock they've already got. But they expect it to last for about 90 days at present. And of course it could be longer. But it won't be too long, I don't think, before there's some backlash against the problem that the Houthis are causing. And it may be that other governments intervene to put pressure on them to stop this tactic. And if they don't, of course, the military option is always there. But that's maybe more difficult. China is the world's largest producer of rare earth metals. And this week, on Thursday, it banned the export of technology to extract and separate the strategic metals 
to protect its dominance in several strategic areas. The Chinese ministry, responsible, said that they've banned the exports of production technology for rare earth metals and alloy metals, as well as technology to prepare some rare earth magnets. And they've published a list of these in the Catalogue of Technologies Prohibited and Restricted from Export. And the stated aims of this catalogue is to protect national security and public interest. China has significantly tightened rules on the exports of these metals this year, and it's in an escalation of its trade war with the United States over the control of critical minerals. It's introduced export permits for chip-making materials, gallium and germanium, back in August, and for several types of graphite since the 1st of December. The move to protect these rare earth technologies by China as Europe and the United States try to reduce dependency on rare earth metals, China produces 90% of refined output. These, of course, are the 17 metals used to make magnets, which are used in electric vehicles, wind turbines and electronics. And you'll have heard me talk about these before on the Chain Reaction podcast, particularly in the episode on China dependency and in a recent episode about rare earth metals. China mastered the solvent extraction process to refine these strategic metals, which Western rare earth companies have struggled with. There are technical complexities and, obviously, concerns over pollution. The US, Japan and France all have the separation technology, but China has the top efficiency and the cost advantage, and China hasn't been too concerned over the polluting aspects of these technologies, despite protests at home. So obviously it's a cranking up of the trade war. Angola this week left OPEC. Angola's decision to leave OPEC, the oil-producing exporting countries, and to go it alone will mean lower prices for oil from Angola, but it will also force down prices for oil on the world markets as a consequence of Angola's decision to take this path. Angola said that being a member of OPEC wasn't serving its best interest, and that's why they want to go it alone. Reuters have calculated that Russia's income from oil and gas during December is likely to fall by about 25% to 719 billion rubles. That's about 7.81 billion US dollars. In the previous month, it was obviously a quarter higher than that. And it's due to a fall in mineral extraction tax takings. The finance ministry disclosed the December budget proceeds in early January. In December 2022, official oil and gas revenues came in at 932 billion rubles. So it's fallen year on year. There are increased subsidies to refineries under the so-called damper payments, and that will also reduce revenue. And of course, Russia's oil energies and gas energy receipts have fallen or been squeezed by Western sanctions, such as price caps and embargoes on seaborne oil exports. And, of course, by the closure of the Nord Stream gas pipeline to Europe, which has blown up in September 2022. It's likely that revenues will decline this year to around 8.891 trillion rubles from 11.586 trillion in 2022, when oil prices were higher. President Vladimir Putin has put the 
Russian car dealership Rolf, which is owned by a Cyprus-based firm founded by Russian businessman Sergei Petrov, under state control. The seizure of the company was set out in a decree published on a government website in Moscow. It says they've taken temporary control as Russian assets are being frozen or disrupted by sanctions by the West. So this is a retaliatory move, by the looks of things. The Danish brewer Carlsberg and the French dairy giant Danone have been among those affected by seizures by the Russian state. Rolf, which traditionally sold a wide range of foreign-branded cars, is the victim of the latest takeover by the state, and it's the first time a high-profile Russian business leader has been relieved of his property publicly in this way. Petrov lives in Australia, and he's accused by the Russian authorities of illegally moving money abroad, which, of course, he denies. Rolf has said that Alexei Guliev has been appointed the new firm's CEO, with Svetlana Vinogradova its first deputy. This temporary management would have no impact on Rolf's operations, they say. Of course, this doesn't make Russia a very attractive prospect for investors if the state is going to take over assets continually. Petrov has reportedly said temporary means permanent. Petrov was one of a small number of Russian businessmen to sign a letter back in 2014 criticising the damage to East-West relations when Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine. So perhaps this is some kind of payback. As recently as September this year, a former senior manager at Rolf was sentenced to eight and a half years in prison for allegedly participating in a deal which was supposed to be illegal, transferring funds out of Russia. The UK economy has reportedly revised its figures for output down for the last quarter. And this, of course, means that the quarter to September, rather than being 0.2% growth, was actually minus 0.1%. So no growth at all, rather decline. And if in the fourth quarter the figure is also negative, then technically the United Kingdom would be in recession at the end of December. I'm guessing that this news was released today to bury it in the Christmas celebrations. Inflation in the United States has fallen to 2.6% in November, and that's the first time inflation has gone below 3% for three and a half years. Food prices have edged down by 0.1%, energy prices dropped 2.7%, and in the 12 months through November, the PCE price index increased by just 2.6% after rising 2.9% in October. October was the first time since March 2021 that the annual PCE price index was below 3%. Truck engine maker Cummins has agreed in principle to pay 1.675 billion US dollars as a penalty for installing emissions defeat devices on hundreds of thousands of engines. And it's the largest penalty ever paid under the Clean Air Act violation in the US. The US Justice Department said that Cummins allegedly installed these devices, which 
misreport the emissions from trucks in a downward fashion on 630,000 vehicles between 2013 and 2019. Cummins has said it expects to take an early 2.04 billion US dollar charge in the fourth quarter as it reached agreement to resolve these regulatory claims about emissions. It was reported this week that Honda Motors in America is recalling 4.5 million vehicles worldwide over risks of fuel pump failure. The recall includes 2.54 million vehicles in the United States and comes after the car company previously recalled 628,000 US vehicles in 2021 and 136,000 in 2020 for exactly the same issue. Honda also issued recalls this month for the same issue in China and Japan. Honda dealers said they'll replace the fuel pump in a filing with the NHTSA. They'll notify owners in February of the recall. There are no reports of injuries, but there are 4,042 warranty claims related to the issue since 2018. The recalls include 2018-20 to 20 models of the Accord, the Civic, the CRV, the HRV, Insight, Ridgeline, Odyssey, Passport and various Acura models, including the ILX, MDX, RDX, RLX, TLX and NSX. Now here's a question for everyone. Microsoft is intending to stop supporting Windows 10 on PCs as early as October in 2025, and it's committed to reducing all support for Windows 10 by October 2028. Little confused? Well, there seems to be two pictures emerging. One says October 25 is the date, and the other October 28. This was when it was questioned by the United States authorities about its intent towards Windows 10. It said it will support Windows 10 for a fee. But this annual fee, which will be introduced to keep those computers alive a little longer, is likely to be so expensive it would be economic for many individuals and businesses to switch to other machines. Now, if that's the case, what happened to Microsoft's green credentials? Have they got any? Because surely that doesn't make sense just to stop supporting the machines so they all end up in landfill with lots of e-waste. Is that good news? Well, many don't think so. So don't Microsoft need to do more homework on this to keep these things alive for longer so as not to create all that e-waste? Don't we have enough? This is becoming a bigger supply chain issue than many think. This end-of-life problem for many goods. There should be more of a commitment from those producing the goods that the goods will not run out of support anytime soon. This goes for all products, particularly in the e-market for screens, for mobiles, mobile devices, for phones, for PCs, and for all kinds of other electronic devices. I think consumers will get rather fed up with this. Some analysts predict that the PCs in question could produce e-waste estimated at 480 million kilograms, which is equivalent to the waste from 320,000 cars. And many of the PCs are still functional, but they'll be dumped because they won't be able to run Microsoft's operating system. 
Microsoft did announce a plan to provide security updates for Windows 10 devices until October 2028 for an undisclosed annual price. If the pricing structure for extended Windows 10 mirrors any past charges made by Microsoft, it's likely to be expensive. Microsoft will only continue to support these Windows 10 machines till October 2025. The hard drives in many PCs and data storage servers are recycled to gather materials to use in electric vehicle motors and for power generation. They can turn end-of-life computers into the magnets that power sustainable technologies like electric vehicles and wind turbines, which will help meet the rising global demand for electricity. Hard drives are often discarded before they reach the end of their functional lifespan, and this creates an excess of rare-earth magnetic material waste. And battery recycling is also possible to retrieve lithium, cobalt, nickel and copper. So come on, Microsoft, what are you doing for the planet? So there's going to be a lot of zombie PCs around when Microsoft pulls the plug on its Windows 10 offering, where many of the machines left behind will not be able to run Windows 11, and there won't be updates to ensure that they are cyber secure. Well, here's one for Christmas. What do you call a snowman with a six-pack? Yeah, you've got it. The abdominal snowman. Well, you'll have to watch out for those snowmen at Christmas, if it snows, of course, because some of them can get quite difficult. I mean, I met one last year and had a lot of trouble because he was in complete meltdown. Well, I guess we're all winding down for a seasonal break right now, and I hope you're going to enjoy your time with the family. So I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I'll be back in the new year with new episodes for the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm Tony Hines, I'm signing off, and I'll say bye for now. podcast was written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains, and we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon, all things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.